difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a current release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. On the first half of this episode, we discuss Spike Lee's hard-fought-for 1992 biopic, Malcolm X. With this half, we'll look at Lee's new film, Another Dive into the Past, and Another Fascinating Story. Loosely based on a true story and co-written by, among others, Lee's Chirac collaborator, Kevin Wilmot... Black Klansman follows Ron Stallworth, the first black detective in Colorado Springs, who, in the late 1970s, developed a phone relationship with an unlikely partner, the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. After noticing an ad in the newspaper, Stallworth called a number looking for new recruits, and, before long, he goes on his way to joining, sight unseen, of course. Physical interactions fell to his partner, although Stallworth's phone relationship continued, eventually putting him in touch with the Klan's grand wizard, David Duke. Beyond those broad strokes, Lee's film takes quite a few liberties with Stallworth's story. Stallworth's partner, Flip Zimmerman, played by Adam Driver, struggles with the danger of going undercover, a danger compounded by being Jewish, and the psychic toll of immersing himself in a culture of hate. Meanwhile, Stallworth strikes up a relationship with Patrice, played by Laura Harrier, the head of Colorado College's Black Student Union, who's unaware that he's been sent to infiltrate her group. And in time, Flip and Ron come to realize the KKK has Patrice and her organization in its sights. Those are all embellishments, and the nature of those liberties has sparked some debate from the director of another Next Picture Show subject, which we'll get into later in the episode. But as cinematic elements, they help turn Black Klansman into a thrilling suspense story that balances tension with humor, while finding room to explore Star Wars' changing sense of identity, institutional racism, and other matters, all leading up to one of the year's most breathtaking endings. We'll talk it all over after the break. KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. When's the last time they let a rookie lead an investigation? Oh, that's right. Never. <laughs> okay. Become his friend. Let's get invited back. So what kind of stuff you guys do? Cross burdens, marches. This is fixing to be a big year for us. You ask too many questions. You undercover or something? We must unite and organize to fight racism. Are you down for the liberation of black people? Power to the people. All power to all the people. All power to all the people. It's right, sister. For you, it's a crusade. For me, it's a job. You're Jewish. That hatred, doesn't that piss you off? You're taking this Jew lie detector test. Why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game? I'm telling you, the wars are coming. Black power! Black power! Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. That's us. Stallworth Brothers. We're on a roll, baby. America first. America first. Okay, what did everyone think? Tasha, I'll start with you. I really think that in talking about this movie, we're going to have to divide up its political relevance, uh, which we'll get into with uh, Boots Riley's critique, and its relationship to the truth, which is complicated and not very satisfying, from its function as just sheer entertainment. Mm -hmm. I found this movie so entertaining and so well acted and so well made, very, very tense uh, and exciting and involving. And by the end... Well, by almost the end, uplifting in a very <laughs> escapist, simple, and then the good guys kicked the bad guys' asses, and racism was over forever, and yeah, yeah, kind of way. There's so much more complexity to it in terms of contextualizing it within the culture, but my experience of watching it was just kind of a, a pure joy of this is really scary, but they're doing something brave and daring and crazy. And then they pull it off in the end. Like I enjoyed watching this movie a great deal when you have to step back and analyze it. There's a lot of other things to take into consideration, but I just, I don't want to undersell as we talk about all of those other things, just the sheer enjoyment value of this movie. 
Yeah, I'm right there with you. I've, I've said this to a couple people in describing the movie. Like, the narrative of this film is incredibly satisfying. The story of it, by which I mean, like, the context and even, like, the ending, which we'll talk about, that's a lot stickier and, like, complicates the satisfaction you feel from this narrative. And I think that is exactly the point. Otherwise, those two ending scenes would not be there. But like the same way that Malcolm X, and I'm not trying to cannibalize uh, connections, but the same way that Malcolm X is sort of, in a way, a very traditional epic biopic, this film is working within like sort of very familiar genre elements. Like it's kind of a buddy cop comedy for for large swaths of it, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and kind of a crime suspense film as well. And within that sort of genre element, it's incredibly entertaining and affecting and exciting. But as soon as it's over, because of the images that Lee leaves you with, it immediately forces you to like recontextualize the satisfaction you feel from that. And I think that is incredibly gutsy and interesting. Like I'm not like 100% sold on like how this film is being presented and maybe discussed in the public sphere. But in terms of a cinematic experience, I don't think it can be denied. And it was a cinematic experience, the ending of which definitely worked for everybody you saw it with, right, Genevieve? I mean, everyone I saw it with who was my boyfriend and called it the most powerful film he'd seen ever. Uh, <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't see as many movies as me. <laughs> but, he's, from, uh, like, he's from the country. <laughs> uh, but no, Tosh is referring to the, the women I rode the elevator with afterwards who had a, <laughs> uh, let's say, silly uh, <laughs> critique of the film, which is that they didn't like when it uh, changed from satire to real life at the end. It's a shift, though, <laughs> to give uh, I, to I, give a little bit of credit to the person on the elevator. I, I, it is I, I, I think shift. it was maybe more of like a misuse or misunderstanding of the word satire than yeah. than anything else but i, I don't know when, like when you described it what i hear is i like it when it felt me it made me feel good about being white but then when it made me feel less good about being white it made me mad yeah yeah that's certainly one way to wh- why do you just assume she's white because <laughs> you told me she was white <laughs> yeah the context it makes it pretty clear yeah i had a really good time with this movie as well but it really didn't kind of shift into a, into a film that just completely rocked me on my heels and until the end and I, and I wonder and this is a complaint that's, that people had of the 9-11 elements of 25th hour of, of like those elements are so powerful because they're evoking something that is real do they completely obliterate or, or weaken or, or overwhelm everything else that happens in that movie I mean I, I'm saying in both cases no but here it's such a dramatic shift to get to the end of the film but I, I think the end of the film is just, is stunning and it speaks to what Spike Lee has been doing his entire career which is to try to be a documentarian as well as a fiction filmmaker is being in touch with how the stories that he's telling have a real relevance to what's happening here and I'm sure certainly something we're going to get in connection so I don't want to again cannibalize that section too much but it, but the film really made me sit up for the end which yeah. sort of really left, left me shaking in a way that almost only Spike Lee movies can for those who want to know what we're talking about and haven't seen the film I'll, I'll describe it briefly for those who don't want to know just hit the 15 second button a couple times pretend we're an ad for mattresses or something <laughs> uh, so the film ends on a triumphant note the clans have been taken down it could almost like end like a freeze frame of a 70s cop mm-hmm. show no, mm-hmm. sure. um, in the bar and, and it's, yeah. it's so smart about genre in that way and then we get another scene, which which is the, the two lead characters, Ron Stallworth and his on-again, off-grown uh, actress girlfriend, Patrice, um, her telling him that they can't go on, that she can't get a cop as, as, a, as an activist. She just can't, they can't handle it. And they, they fight for a little bit. But then and there's an, a knock at the door and it leads to the classic Spike Lee Dolly mm-hmm. shot, actors on Dolly shot of them both armed, holding guns, looking out a window and seeing a cross burning, which segues into horrifying footage of the Charlottesville, well, the violence at Charlottesville. I, I don't, to call what happened there a protest is to denigrate the word protest. I mean, specifically and, the neo-Nazi rally and right. subsequent murder. Of Heather Heyer, to whom the yeah. film is, is dedicated. And, and any sense you've got from watching the satisfying genre film, this is a settled business that we can, mm-hmm. we can move on. This is a closed chapter. This is a part of, this is part of history that's over is completely undone by that. And that's, it's smart about genre films in other ways too. Like, you know, it's a, it's a Spike Lee movie. So, you know, it, as, as satisfying as, as a, as a cop story, there's also a long speech from Kwame Ture, the activist formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, who's Ron is sent to one of the speeches to sort of like infiltrate it and see what's going on. And, and he finds himself uh, stirred and, 
it's another, you know, again, preview of connections, but it's another like oratory that the like of Malcolm X where, where there's a story being told while the speech is going on as well. And there's a, Harry Belafonte shows up for a horrifying tale of, 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 a, of a lynching at one point. And, and, you know, it is a genre film, but also you're getting these these notes, that t- literally notes that, that are telling you something else. Now it's Terrence Blanchard, his longtime composer, it's this, this remarkable score that's, that's so emotional and, and in ways that aren't necessarily that line up with the emotions on screen, but work for the movie. And I don't know. You know, we're going to talk about quibbles, I'm sure, but I was I was very taken with the way with the way this film worked. Right. And, well, and let's remember how this film opens, which is with Gone with the Wind, yes. the, the famous crane shot from Gone with the Wind, followed by a thing with Alec Baldwin that I don't even quite know how to describe. And then later on, the film has a, a centerpiece scene involving Birth of a Nation. And like, I mean, it is very clearly drawing in these I guess classic film <laughs> reference points but in a manner that extends the narrative of this film into the past the same way that that ending extends it into the future slash present there's a discussion of black exploitation in the middle of mm-hmm. it too that would be indulgent if it weren't so relevant to to what they're talking yeah, and, about and, and it sets up that dolly shot of them as you know shafting coffee yeah. going down the hallway you know yeah. it also just it's sort of a reminder of the time which uh, some aspects of this are timeless. Some of them are giant afros and extremely 70s clothing. Hmm. Um, but a lot of the issues are issues that we're still dealing with today. And I feel like the black exploitation moment is kind of a reminder of where they are culturally, especially in the middle of the black power movement. A lot of the same sort of stuff that you get out of Troy's speech and out of what's going on with the student group, it's just sort of a reminder of like, here's here's the larger culture outside the two little rooms that we've created for ourselves as like a nominally integrated cop shop uh, where people of different races are working together effectively and a black proto-militant college group where it's you've got kind of like the little echo chamber of a bunch of like-minded people feeding each other's emotions. Like these are fairly closed circuits but by bringing black exploitation into it you're kind of reminding everybody like what the larger culture is doing right at this moment music too i mean they're, they're, oh yeah, yeah for sure it's really well too jumping back to the beginning of the film which you referred to as uh, an alec baldwin thing i don't know how to describe <laughs> i'd actually forgotten about that but looking back on it it feels like a parallel to some of the speech making we get uh from Ture and from malcolm x and malcolm x uh, it's a manifesto but it's also it's a manifesto punctuated by breaks that make the character Baldwin is playing look kind of ridiculous. Without the harnessing of language that Malcolm X worked so hard to achieve. You and know? it's like he's he's got the same depth of belief and the same like use of language as a weapon and some of the same power and impetus, but he keeps stopping and undermining himself to kind of like recontextualize what he's doing as a recording, like what he's doing as creating propaganda for an audience in a way that feels very like deliberately making sure that he never builds up enough of a head of steam Mm -hmm. to like satisfy the people who might listen to that and find it compelling or satisfying unlike duke though it's a contrast to to david duke played by Topher grace who is a a gifted speaker and we he you know knows how to to reach a wider audience than, than Baldwin's character does, and we we hear him on the radio and kind of playing out in the background as as well. So I, I think there's a contrast being drawn there as well. This film is such an interesting summation, really, of all of Lee's techniques and tricks and ways of doing things. Uh, and I think he's so comfortable mixing and matching in this movie in that you do have this hugely satisfying piece of craftsmanship similar to like uh, Inside Man that's your main narrative thrust but then he's throwing bombs here and there he's he's making connections between what's happening here and what happened in the past in the present as, as Genevieve pointed out and then you have individual scenes that just have a very unique flavor to them like the Ture speech or the Harry Belafonte speech. I'm thinking the Ture because of the reaction shots of the people listening to him and the way that's photographed is so weird and so unusual and distinctive. It makes a strong impression of it. It kind of like the words that are being spoken feel more compelling because of the way he's filming the reaction shots to them, which is highly expressionistic and not natural, uh, like say more the more genre elements of the movie. We should briefly shout out how gifted Lee has been when choosing cinematography 
cinematographers, Ernest Dickerson. Malcolm X was his swan song as a as a cinematographer. He went on to a very long and successful directorial career. Uh, the cinematographer here is uh, Chase Irvin, who's mostly worked in music videos, including uh, he worked on Lemonade. So, you know, pretty, uh, high, pretty high quality yeah. of work there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, choosing your crew well certainly helps. We should talk about the critique from Boots Riley, I, which you can read online. He tweeted it out. It's been much written about. I don't want to do it any disservice by attempting to summarize it, but I'll attempt to summarize it. Riley's objections are twofold. Um, one is that, that it veers away from the facts of what happened. There, you know, some pretty substantial liberties taken with Star Wars story, and also kind of gloss over the fact that you know here we see him uh, infiltrating the student activists for an evening and a little bit of follow up when in fact he was uh, undercover for for three years uh, in that. And the other aspect of it is that Riley feels it glorifies the police, and and that's not a position he feels comfortable with at all. That that law enforcement and uh, protection of civil rights and advancement of, of civil rights was not something that law enforcement was generally interested in. And I, I think those are tough critiques to dismiss. And Lee has not really engaged with them, but I don't think he feels... Like he a little engaged. bit. A little bit. But. A little bit. He actually, there's a... There's a like, statement. There's a, yeah, there's a statement that he made today, as a matter of fact. Oh, oh, I missed that. What was it? I mean, he basically, among other things, he said, you know, we need police. Like, not all police are racist. I don't want to be part of portraying police in a way that implies that they're monolithic. I don't want to be part of portraying black people in a, a way that suggests they're monolithic. Mm. And he actually brought up Malcolm X in that regard and said, you know, that he was critiqued for taking on Malcolm X because he's like a middle class bourgeois person. Like, how how could this person take on that story? And he kind of likens... Riley's critique here uh, in the same way like you know how can how can this person tell that story he feels that he doesn't name Riley like he doesn't call him out directly um, but he kind of implies that Riley is expecting black people to be a a monoculture who have uh, like a single set of opinions and he's like that's that's not true that's not me yeah. The part of this critique that actually complicates Black Klansmen to me is the way that Riley suggests it handles the two different undercover operations that Stallworth engaged in and how it weights them differently. And by including that early scene in which he infiltrates the Black student group, which Riley claims was part of like a three years long mission with the Express of bringing those groups down. And then he claims that the infiltration of, of the Ku Klux Klan was actually, and, and this is where it gets like hard to verify. And I don't want to put like, yeah, and, he, he kind of switches from the specific story to uh, sort of a generalizations about the way police uh, interacted with these. Groups. Yeah. And, and he sort of makes some implications that like the, police were working with these white supremacist groups like i don't want to get into the truth of any of those statements but it does bring up some questions about why this film does feature that early scene and why it's weighted so differently from everything that follows with the clan and i do think that clansman is drawing some specific connections between those two missions in sort of interesting ways but Riley's letter just sort of made me think about it. And this is what I, what I meant when I said, like, the story of the film is mm-hmm. less satisfying than the film itself. Because then you think about, like, well, what is it that informed that storytelling choice? Like, what is, like, the truth that is being massaged there, I guess? Sure. I mean, people who have followed my work for any period of time are probably aware that one of my huge bugaboos is based on true story films. Mm-hmm. And I've written a lot about it. I've, I've talked a lot about it on this podcast. It's just something... Literally everybody else at the table just reached for their wine and started drinking it. (laughs) What a great moment. So, I mean, I've talked about this a lot. And here, once again, you know, you, you just have that question of if you look at the facts and how the specific ways in which this movie diverts from the facts speaks to an agenda. And Boots Riley's point, I think, is that that agenda is questionable. And that's that's just what it comes down to is like he sees an agenda. He makes a really good argument that it's there and he expresses disagreement with that agenda. By the way, I'm so impressed with Boots Riley right yeah. now. Yeah. If you don't follow him on Twitter, get on that. It's a lot of sorry to bother you promo, but there's also like he's a really gifted cultural critic. Yeah. And he's like he's defended a criticism of sorry to bother you in a very, I think, 
even-handed and sophisticated way that doesn't come across as defensive. And then, then this thing, it's not, it's not, here's 240 characters of why I don't like this movie. It's a three page like essay uh, explaining in detail what he thinks about the film. I couched think it's fascinating. Couched in a lot of respect for Spike Lee yeah. as, yeah. as well. And, mm-hmm. and it's it's the kind of thing where as, as much as I like this film, you can't read that and just say, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He does. I think he was prompted to go on at length. But I think he did initially send out a tweet and felt like he needed to follow it up with this piece but I, i'm really grateful this this exists and i mean it, it's such a bad idea to do this <laughs> but i wish i wish it weren't such a bad idea i mean it, when filmmakers critique other filmmakers work it becomes a big deal we saw it with ethan hawk this week as well and it's just it, it's frustrating to me the way those conversations end up playing out because especially when you have somebody like boots riley who has contributed this really long thoughtful thing that you really have to kind of wrestle with so uh, i was I'm happy that it exists uh, however this conversation may have gone uh, as to these particulars of, of it though I, I am the sort of person who is uh, inclined to give a tremendous amount of leeway to filmmakers in terms of what they do with the historical record in terms of fidelity the historical record it's not that important to me i think it's almost becomes less important when you're dealing with somebody who is apologies to ron stallworth kind of a nobody i mean not, not somebody that we didn't know before who isn't a significant figure in history whose story can be kind of like harvested for some other purpose and i I think that's i think i'm fine with what he does with regard to the film's attitude about the police i'd say two things one it's extremely jarring to see a spike lee film criticized for its cozy portrayal (laughs) of the police that's pretty unusual um uh, if you've seen any of spike lee's films before and then i think the film itself has a fairly nuanced sense of different levels of racism that might be present in a police department like this. You have people in, who are virulently racist, like the person who is uh, who pulls uh, over his his girlfriend, right? Yeah. And then and then he's his, the one who gets taken down. In the he gets end. taken and down, but of course that's the freeze frame moment. We'll have to talk about we'll have to talk about, about that moment because that moment, I th- it, someone made an interesting argument to me that that moment is just pure fantasy that it didn't actually really happen. That it's just it's just a faint. It's like a fake out that leads us to the moment after when we're actually confronted Hmm. with with the reality. On some level, that makes sense because it doesn't fit with anything else. It's terrible if you think about it. If you you take it straight forward, I think that scene is so bad. And Uh, it just doesn't fit with what we've seen of the rest of the police department and how they operate. mm -hmm. And it just, as people have, have pointed out in critiques, from a legal standpoint, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, you can't get arrested for saying, you know, and by the way, I'm totally racist. Yeah. But, no, right. It but I don't, feels I don't see any somatic components in the yeah. film that yeah. suggest it's a I don't fantasy. Think, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's a fantasy, but I think it, it plays off our expectations of how a story like this would end, usually when we see it. And mm-hmm. uh, then what comes after is is a twist on that and, and uh, a rude awakening from, from that fantasy. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was so effective because it really, for me, is the low point of the movie. And then it's followed up by the ending, which which is like completely stunned me so like it's that was emotionally a, devastating it really is it really is but in any case i think there i think the film does have a, a, a somewhat more nuanced picture i mean it's not it's not the strongest element of the film the depiction of the colorado springs police department but spike's point is well taken in that he clearly isn't willing to just tag the police entirely as as a bunch of racists i think the, i think he wants to take a little bit more of a nuanced look at authority than that Tagging off what what you said about the police element not being the strongest part of the film, or the police department, we don't want to dismiss the performances. Michael Buscemi is is great, but Adam Driver is especially great, and and almost gets you know has a story of his own as as the Jewish partner who is you know immersed in this, this world that would cast him out if if not worse that they knew who he was, but also is disturbed by the way he fits into it. Not that mm-hmm. he shares these sentiments, but the fact that he can be accepted by these people is is his own kind of disturbing. And, and, and then the clan, it's, well, now I'm just kind of free associating, but the clansmen themselves, it's a fascinating depiction as well, especially that, that honey sweet wife of the one clansman mm. who... Just such, just a welcoming. That, that scene huggy. of them in bed. Yeah. Oh, that just like shivers down my spine. That. She's she's so evil, but she's not depicted. She doesn't think she's evil, mm-hmm. and she's not depicted in a traditionally evil way. And except when she opens her mouth to express a view about anything, and you realize <laughs> this is an awful person. But uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot uh, uh, to unpack with this movie, and we should probably move on to connections. Though at some point, hopefully, we'll get some good feedback so we can can, can chew this over some more. We'll be right back after the break to. Talk talk about the connection between Malcolm X and Black Klansman. 
Today we are privileged to be among white men and white women, <laughs> such as yourselves. Real warriors for the real America, the America that our ancestors fought and died for. The true white American race, the backbone from whence came our great Southern heritage. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you so much for never putting your country second. America first. Now it's time for connections when you bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. I think the most obvious thing to talk about is both films are stories set in the past. The lead ties very tightly to the present. Malcolm X opens with a speech playing over footage of the Rodney King beating, uh, which was, was you know ripped from the headlines in 1992. If you watch the making of documentary on the Blu-ray, I forget who, but it talks about how they were flying into LA to see the film for the first time, the first cut of the film, as the Rodney King riots were, were unfolding. <laughs> so uh, it, it is the timeliest possible reference you can make at this point. And then this, of course, was released on the first anniversary of the Charlottesville violence and ends with scenes from that there. Connections to the present are not in any way understated. They're built into the way the films are constructed. Is there a difference between those two approaches, though? Just to add another example of how Malcolm X ends with, of course, uh, I am Malcolm X and all these these children. And that ending, because like Black Klansman, this is an event that has sort of a solid end point in the past. It is a, a way to extend it, not just into the present, but sort of into the future with the inclusion specifically of those children and the implication of what they will become definitely extends the film beyond the film itself. With Black Klansmen, it just takes us to the present, whereas Malcolm X ends in the implied future. Malcolm X is, is sort of a, a tragic historical story that ends on kind of an up note, and this is an upbeat uh, tale, oh, yeah. you know, a story that ends on the the, the, the downest of down notes. Oh, it's such a shift. I mean, I just love, I, I, I mean, really, this is the best thing about the movie to me is that to have this super satisfying story play out where they get them, you know, they get the clan and they they get to call David Duke and have this conversation. It's just, it's such a triumphant moment. And then you get the spike shot of them on the on the dollying towards this burning cross, and the, and then the the footage from Charlottesville, and it's just like you haven't nothing has been solved here. It's all going going to continue there, and then it's going to continue into the future, and uh, and it's it's all part of one terrible struggle and one terrible you know racist continuum and uh you get duke uh, humiliated in the film and then you get the real life duke still out there doing his awful mm-hmm. thing yeah exa- in, exactly in, in, i yeah. mean i you know i mean i think we we haven't talked about this at all but i mean the, there are people who really despise the ending of this film and felt it was totally exploitative to to include the footage that spike lee includes in the film am, am i getting the vibe that well, n- people that didn't mind that much or did or what, what are your thoughts on I, that to the extent i've seen criticisms of the use of that footage it's been specifically the use of the car plowing into the crowd and like seeing someone die (laughs) you know i had never seen that footage before like i made a choice not to watch it you know and then like here it was and you know not giving me the choice to not watch it i don't personally resent having to have watched it like i think it was very powerful and i think it's important to not look away from from incidents like this but i can also understand being upset being confronted with that specific imagery against your will i mean i can understand it i have a hard time sympathizing with it yeah. you know it, it just feels like a and if you're not mad you're not paying attention kind of moment but i mean i think you can watch the other footage from charlottesville and be really mad like i mean there's like seeing white supremacists marching and hearing the things they are saying that's all hugely upsetting already and then to just take it to this level of watching someone actually be killed is maybe taking it a bridge too far for some people. I again I can understand mm-hmm. some people taking that that perspective like I can't and one of the horrible reasons is because we've seen so much of this footage lately with so many of these things happening that I'm not sure I would have placed it specifically as Charlottesville and specifically that rally without that footage which I also had never seen had never sought out but instantly recognized what I was seeing 
And the impact of it, it was horrifying because of that feeling of, of having not seen it, of having not ever been in that, that mind space of watching this footage. It felt very confrontational, but it also just felt very deliberate. And the fact that it had such an emotional impact to me is kind of a sign that it worked and that it did what I strongly suspect he was trying to do. I think that, I think though Genevieve is right about that specific image or the specific image of that, that car peeling through the crowd and, and smashing into people. I mean, you, you could conceivably give us a pretty so- solid sense of what was going on in, in Charlottesville without you know showing what is a, uh, you know someone someone die on screen though i don't watching the film and remembering the film i don't recall her specific a shot of her I, specifically I, I, I mean I, you're seeing the car from behind you, you so you're are. not you're not really seeing the bodies you're just seeing you, you see a body fly you see a body fly it's not hers i don't think i believe it's a, a male body yeah but, yeah. yeah but um i mean it's justifiable but I, but it's it, it, it is something something that should be noted was upsetting to people and certainly to go back to Malcolm X, I mean, I, I just, what an incredible thing for a, a studio film, which again, not possible now, studio films are so timid, but to, to open as it does with, with Rodney King sure. and with an, the American flag burning and turning into an X. I mean, come on. Yeah. What, I don't know how you'd be a bit more like provocative than that. Yeah. I think one thing, just to look at the filmmaking in both cases, one thing to me that's just sort of interesting is that the footage in both cases, the real-life footage, is very rough. The Rodney King beating uh, it was shot from a distance at night, uh, and it's being you know blown up onto a, a big screen, and it's like it's rough to watch obviously we're talking a lot about that but it's also just visually rough mm-hmm. and it it doesn't feel like something that was directed it doesn't feel coordinated mm-hmm. it's it's violent and confrontational in the way real violence is you know it's shocking and chaotic and doesn't have predictable rhythms and in the same way the charlottesville footage uh, and particularly the the car attack is raw visually raw because it was shot on phones and emotionally raw and and just like raw in terms of pacing spike lee is such a sophisticated like visual stylist and in both of these films we have all of these like carefully designed and conducted and and planned shots the films are beautiful everything is composed very well you have a very mannered story taking you through some very specific beats i feel like in both films a lot of what that that real life footage is doing is reminding you where you're sitting down to watch an entertainment but the real world is still out there and the real world is very different and the real world is very relevant to what's going on. And I, th- I think it's important to also note that the Rodney King footage and the Charlottesville footage, in neither case is that the film's only use of archival footage or whatever you want to call it, of real life footage. You know, both films make fairly liberal use of footage that is, I guess, outside the film in some way, whether it's shots of newspapers or actual footage or the Gone with the Wind opening. There's definitely an effort in both of these films to sort of bring the real world in through these outside visual references. We have dwell on this topic a lot, but one last point I'd like to make about Spike Lee is he has this willingness or interest in presenting the present, like immediate present. I mean, he did did that with 25th Hour. He did that with Malcolm X. He does that here of really very directly engaging with what's going on right now as his cameras are running. And that's kind of unusual. I mean, given the pace in which movies are made, the way films process history, I mean, it usually takes... A while. I mean, you think about all of the events that happened during, say, the Bush years. It took a while for films to react to Afghanistan and Iraq and 9-11 and these things. It just, it's very slow, and, and Spike is not that kind of guy. He's, he likes to really just get in there and have that conversation right away and, and uh, ruffle some feathers. So I, I kind of appreciate that about him. And his agenda is just so clear. I mean, he's, he's done more than one project that's ended with characters looking into the camera and saying, wake up. And I feel like at heart, that's the message behind all of his films. And it's certainly the message behind bringing real life footage into both of these films is, you know, wake up and look at what's going on around you. Yeah. So one other thing that these films have in common that speaks to the point of, of messages is, is they both have speeches in them. Uh, Malcolm X, again, the whole middle section is is 
speech after speech. Uh, not that it really feels that way. This we get Kwame Ture's speech before before the students. You know, David Duke uh, gets gets not, not as many monologues, but the, that's in there as, as well. But it kind of keeps with a career long interest in, in oratory. I mean, you know, there's not, not as many filmmakers that will give over as much time to someone just speaking. Uh, Chevrack has some really uh, good passages that way as, as well. Twenty um, fifth hour has its uh, you know that emotional scene with him like talking into the mirror. Yeah, the monologue. I mean, it, and it, at the end too with the mirror of the mirror scene. Yeah, was the end of that one. And do the right thing, like revolves around speeches. Yeah. So why does it work for Spike Lee when I think a lot of filmmakers would stumble this, with this kind of uh, material? There's another one in Black Klansman that I want to bring up, which is Harry Belafonte yes. oh, speaking yeah. to the student yeah. group, which is probably one of the most discussed moments of the film because it is intercut with that scene of the clan watching Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have already talked about and written about that scene. I'm not really going to say anything new here, but in terms of the idea of speech making and oratory. I find it interesting that those two moments specifically are intercut because we are seeing sort of the power of cinema playing out on one half and the power of oratory of personal experience reflection playing out simultaneously and seeing the similar but very different power and the different connection to the truth or personal experience that is happening in those two moments that are being woven together. So that's an extraordinary <laughs> scene for a lot of reasons, but uh, specific to speech making, that is one of them. And if you could consider too that in Black Klansman, he's really stopping the movie cold. I mean, if we're talking about the film as being a genre film, you expect the action to move forward, and he's really pausing in both the. Um, Teray speech and, and Harry Belafonte's speech to really listen to what's being said and, mm-hmm. and be in that moment uh, and and then create, you know, with the um, Belafonte speech, you know, a very compelling contrast between, as you say, oratory and cinema, the real sequences and, and for him to kind of stop a movie cold to allow these things to happen. It's a great touch. And it's a, a very, you know, again, you know, Spike Lee being, a, you know, the daring filmmaker that he is because a more conventional film would see that kind of material as being stuff you could pass over or just get a little bit of. Um, and he sort of stays in the, in the moment. I mean, it, Malcolm X, it's just, it's essential to the plot, really, and essential to the character. But I think Black Klansman is a different story. I feel like there's also just a narrative effort to make the speeches immediately relevant to the character that's giving them. I'm just, I'm thinking about other films that I've seen relatively recently with uh, famous speeches or long speeches. And I come down to like Gary Oldman delivering Churchill's big speech in Longest Hour, in Darkest Hour. They can't see you roll your eyes. (laughs) No, the eye roll was because I got the title wrong and corrected myself. I was rolling my eyes. (laughs) I like when he started that speech in that movie, I just had this kind of mental eye roll because I was like, "Eh, you know, here comes the money line. Like here comes like us explaining to you what's important and it just the whole thing felt very artificial to me and very again oscar Beatty. it just i wasn't engaged with what he was saying i didn't know that character particularly well and and to me the big problem with darkest hour was not having a sense for what drove him or why any of this was important to him. I didn't know if he was making the speech entirely for political reasons or was trying to communicate something important to him. Always with Spike Lee, when somebody gives a speech, you know how important it is to them. You know that they're trying to communicate something that they believe in for a reason and that it's always delivered by people with just impeccable charisma and force of will in a way that, to me, Gary Oldman's performance in Darkest Hour was, you know, a strong piece of imitation, but I didn't believe in the character. I like I, I can't fault either of these uh, the characters like either Washington as Malcolm X or Corey Hawkins as Teray. Uh, you know, I just I I can't fault either of them either in terms of compelling speech making or just coming across like they're they're in the moment and they mean what they say as opposed to they're presenting a moment of history. I'd not to turn this into a uh, Darkest Hour podcast, but I, I, think, I think it's interesting to bring that in because, uh, in regards to Malcolm X, because I, th- I feel like the big speech moments there 
in that movie of which there are too many don't work. I know there's parts that don't work as well, but I, I like the scenes where you see Oldman's Churchill with his guard down, like sort of be t- between the lines of history moments where uh, moments of doubt, but it only gets that part right. I think the other parts it doesn't do particularly well, whereas I think Malcolm X does get both elements of, of a biopic, right? You know, speaking of public faces and private faces and, you know, another theme of these movies is divided identities. Malcolm X, we see him start at a very different place than where he ends, but you know, Washington makes him recognizably the same character. Although if you put him side by side, you wouldn't necessarily recognize him uh, in some ways. Uh, whereas Black Klansman is, is, you know, the split identity there is, is you know, physical and type of everything else. I mean, Star Wars has, has to become two people, one of them who looks like Adam Driver <laughs> uh, in this movie. So, uh, you know, I think they both play with uh, some interesting ideas here, though. There's also just divided identity within Ron Stallworth, the the single person. Sure. Like he kind of has that recurring line about how he he can speak jive and he can speak. <laughs> I, I don't remember what the other option is, yeah. but not jive. <laughs> you know, and he is a cop, and like that is something that comes up a lot in relation to his identity as a black man. You know, and like how successful the film is in navigating that divided identity is up for debate, as we've sort of already discussed. But I think it's interesting that that divide within the person is also sort of reflected in a way outside the person and with the conceit of the two people being Ron Stallworth as as well. I mean, to me, the degree to which Black Klansman falters, especially in this specific aspect, mostly comes out of the fact that we really don't know who Ron Stallworth mm-hmm. is. I mean, the we, we kind of meet him in the film walking up to the cop shop to apply, like having seen a, a sign saying that, I don't remember what the wording is, but basically... Diversity pe- hiring. Di- yeah, yeah, the people of color are encouraged to, to apply. And we have that little moment of him kind of adjusting his afro and like bracing himself and then walking in. And it's almost like he's invented in that moment. He's a device to a certain extent. Like, I mean, I know he's he's based on a real person, but like the only reason this story goes in the way it does is because he is the first black man in the Colorado Police Department. But know? the film spends so much time on, on who he is. Is on his divided loyalty is on how Patrice affects his his emotions, how listening to Teresa's speech affects his emotions, how he doesn't necessarily know who, like who he wants to be, how he seems to delight in baiting Duke in particular, mm. and he kind of hates the persona he's created, but he it it tickles him that he's getting away with it. We're we're so much living in his emotions. And we don't know where any of that comes from. And like at, at some point in the film, he tells, I believe Patrice, it's been a little while since I've seen the film, that like he really wanted to be a cop, that he always wanted to be a cop. And it's like, this is an important piece of the puzzle that I wish I'd known earlier. I wish I had some idea who he is. And you compare that with like watching Malcolm X develop through each stage of his career. I am not saying the Black Klansman would be improved by being three and a half hours long. <laughs> I don't need to see it's every bit of his life. <laughs> I just I wish I had some sense of who he was so I could better appreciate that divided identity he's facing. See, my feeling is that that uncertainty is feature rather than bug. Mm. And and, and this is something that connects Black Klansmen with the early going of Malcolm X of just how does an African-American man you know navigate this world that's dominated by whites and where where, what is his place in that environment uh you know it's so stark in both films it's so stark in in black Klansman when you have this character who's entering an all-white police department and then you have you know malcolm x who starts the film by straightening his hair and and dating you know white women and trying to become a part of that society a certain way and i feel like that's a conflict that's so present in a lot of spike lee's films and perhaps spike lee's as someone who is become very quite successful and and has an upper middle class life and is having to figure out what his place in is in white society and what his place is in, in black society and that dilemma is kind of played out pretty strongly in both films well there's a lot we could talk about here and we're running running short on time we have a we have a list here of topics we're not going to get to including like i think we're just you know style is an easy thing to talk about we're probably not going to talk about that we've we touched on we, yeah Lee's we talked style. about a lot of like lee flourishes yeah here and there we should talk about you know guys as as for white people, I feel like you know white people Wait, have talked about enough. <laughs> uh, we should talk about white allies, which you know play out in interesting ways in this film. I mean, Malcolm X has that scene where, where a a well meaning 
white college student walks up to Malcolm X and says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I'm not racist like my ancestors. What can I do? And he, and he says nothing and walks away. And, and as an earnest college student in 1992, I, I found that moment kind of kind of shocking uh, in some ways. Like, is there a place for, for me in, the, in this movie? And obviously the movie is much more, more complicated than that. And, and Malcolm X's thinking goes in other directions later on. But but it is sort of like a white person trying to insert themselves into the story that, that where they have no place. That's how, that's how I see it now. I mean, the idea of, of black people and white people working together is, is in, in Black Klansman, it's is much more central thanks to the uh, Ron and Flip's partnership, which I think is interesting. To That itself is kind of interesting contrast. And, and I'll, just, I'll just leave it there. What, what does everyone think about the way these two films play out white allies for black struggles? I mean, I love the Malcolm X scene. It's <laughs> it's squirmy as hell. Yeah. And it ties the film to the present moment in yet another way. That whole scene would be no different if you walked up and said, you know, I am woke AF. Yeah. And I just need I you to know that. I believe that Black Lives Matter. And, <laughs> I believe yeah. the hashtag Black Lives Matter. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean. Oh, I would have loved, why, why loved that dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, it's so painfully like, can you... Like, can you maybe, yeah, can you wave your magic wand? The the, original white sin of slavery. As Keith says, it's also, you know, this is not about you. Yeah, Yeah. it's like this this civil rights struggle. How does it relate to me as a white person? (laughs) (laughs) But it's like she wants a cookie. And you just, you see so much of that in progressive circles. And it's like, your well-meaningness like we're all well-meaning people who like want everybody to know that we're well-meaning but maybe sometimes it's not about us and it just seems like so much of at least on social media especially on twitter where this is just kind of a a big circular discussion like the answer keeps coming back to you can shut up and listen to whatever marginalized group is trying to talk right now that you're not a part of and it's something people have so much difficulty accepting i just the fact that Mal- that Malcolm X like boils it down to basically like about three lines. <laughs> yeah. so One, nothing. He just says nothing. 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 Yeah. yeah. Well, you know her her question, which is a, a run on sentence or two, and then his answer. The and I think if there's there's an echo of that in, in Black Klansmen is that there is a place for white allies, but it's a commitment and it's work, and you're going to put yourself in danger and everything that you know the privilege that you have is going to be on the line if if, if you want to be an ally. Uh, let me be sympathetic to the college student in this scenario and, and, and also make an, another point, which is that this is also a reflection of where Malcolm X was ideologically at this specific point sure. in time, no, which sure. is which is advocating for a you know, the back going back to Africa. That's I mean, the, of just a separation of a separation of, of the races. So so in that sense, there really absolutely is no role. And I, and I wonder if that conversation again goes differently if it happens at the end of the film. And, and I think we could also see this character who comes up to him as being somebody who wants to be humble i don't think i don't necessarily see her as is seeking absolution I, I think she's she's trying to try to ask what she can do you know i mean which i think is is about a, as humble as you could possibly a, a thing you could po- could do in a situation like that and and, and be, is being rejected i don't know I, may, am i wrong or? no you're not wrong i empathize with her utterly like i yeah. i absolutely I'm probably understand closer to her being her than yeah, yeah. Other character in the movie. exactly <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I know. I it's not that I don't sympathize; mm-hmm. it's that I appreciate both the expression of his beliefs in that moment and just the absolutism of it. Oh, sure, definitely. Uh, like, I I appreciate that there's no compromise to it. And I mean, I do think I think you're right. I think that like as the film goes on, his perspective may change. And you know, there's the line about like we can't have unity between the races until we have more black unity. Like, basically, mm-hmm. there's always since the civil rights era, there has been that like that wing of black nationalism that's basically been like we can try to work on getting along with other races but like first we have to get our own house in order and you can't help us do that because that has to be it's about our identity Mm -hmm. you know we have to establish our identity before we can figure out how it relates to you could you just give us space like i i absolutely empathize with her right yeah one thing that should be avoided with Malcolm X is, and I think Lee very much avoids this, it's a story of someone's evolving thought, but it's never really someone seeing the error of his ways. Like, oh, I had these backwards views about white people then, but I'm, I'm much freer now. It's No, it's it's more about him coming to a broader perspective, but how he was feeling in that moment isn't necessarily wrong. 
and or he's never treated as wrong as well. I mean, like a lot of his evolution is around how the nation of Islam changes and his relationship to it early in his in his life and early in his kind of career as a demagogue is appropriate to what it is at the time in addition to where he is with it mm-hmm. and and that changes. Jumping back to uh, to white allyship, looking at black Klansmen, I think one of the more interesting moments in the movie is Adam Driver's whole speech about how, like, he never thought about his Jewish identity mm-hmm. until he had to worry about it, until he had to confront it, until he had to deny it. And I think that's also a really interesting aspect of, of white allyship in that movie specifically, is that being put in the position of a minority and being put in the position of someone who is despised for reasons completely beyond your control gives him a completely new perspective on the whole matter. And it's very troubling to him. He doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know how to deal with it. I, I, I know that that's entirely invented for this movie and has no bearing on like the actual person. But I think it's fascinating. I forget. Is that before or after the echo of the moment where like early early in the film after Ron attends the Kwame Ture speech and like the his many officers talking to him about it and the line about you know arm yourselves or whatever and and Ron basically says like I don't think he really meant it and then there's an echo of that moment later where Flip Zimmerman basically says the same thing about something that someone in the in the clan said like I I, I don't think he really meant it that is a moment in the film that I haven't really resolved in my mind, and I probably need to see it again and to see where it falls in terms of the broader story. But sort of the idea of being willing to cut someone slack who shares your identity. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that parallel. I do think yeah. it's, that's an interesting point. No, it struck me as well. And I, I think it is, there's def, it's there for a reason. Uh, I'm like you, I'm not so I can pinpoint why, what the reason yeah. it is. It's, it's, it's bugged me since I've seen the film in part because it went by so quickly that I didn't have time to fully process it. And I probably shouldn't have even brought it up in this discussion because I like, I, I'm not entirely sure how it fits into this topic of white allyship, but it feels important somehow. And I guess someone write in and tell me what you think because I I don't have an answer. I mean, to me, it feels like the parallelism there could just come from a place of both of them kind of thinking, please don't take this as you need to go in and execute all these people. Because Mm. I think particularly with Stallworth, when he says that, what he's saying is like, yes, they said these words. That doesn't mean they all need to be rounded up and shot because that feels like the tone that's coming in at him mm-hmm. is just this, like, we're catching them in the act of a crime. And he's like, there's, there's students who are talking yeah. like about something that makes them feel better. Like, maybe, maybe you don't need to do this. I feel like that's sort of what's underwriting what he's saying with uh, Flip. I don't know. It, I mean, it might be a, this, a similar sort of thing. It's a little harder to see him like wanting to def- defend those guys, yeah. given how they're portrayed. I almost feel like if I'm being generous toward Flip and taking it in the context of sort of him being very uncomfortable with what this experience is bringing up in terms of his identity as, as a Jewish man, like maybe it's him convincing himself of that and like trying to make himself feel like he is not in the danger he perceives himself to be in right now or you know that he's not part of a race that is is actually that too. out to do what these like it's got to be at least a little comforting hanging out with these guys thinking it's all talk they're you know they're a bunch of creepy racists but they don't mean it like they're upset and they're just saying they're they're being edgelords on the internet you know <laughs> they, it's all for the lulls they don't actually mean that <laughs> I'm glad Edgelords is coming to our podcast. <laughs> well, uh, we have put together our own epic with, this, with these two episodes, which are run a little long. We hope, hopefully everyone enjoyed it. You should see these movies. I think we, we can agree on that. Malcolm X is widely available on streaming services and on Blu-ray and DVD. Black Klansman is currently in theaters, and we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. 
Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? There's a film that I saw back at South by Southwest and wrote about at the time uh, that's finally come out. It's both in theaters in very limited release and available uh, pretty broadly on VOD. It's called What Keeps You Alive. Uh, it's by written and directed by Colin Minahan. And he sets it up to be a sort of uh, most dangerous game slash Rob White's Death Watch kind of scenario where a couple goes into the the woods and things go wrong and somebody is uh, hunted through the woods like game. The thing about it is he planned it as a relationship between a man and a woman. And then the man that he'd cast in the role dropped out about a month before he was going to shoot because he got a, a TV role and he ended up recasting it with a woman. And suddenly it becomes a very different kind of story about this lesbian relationship and about the, the kind of the emotional connections between them. But he didn't rewrite the character significantly. So it doesn't read like it's trying to make a comment about lesbian relationships. It doesn't read like it's trying to make any kind of comments about femininity and masculinity. As often happens when roles written for men are recast with women and not rewritten, the gender dynamics just get really interesting and, and rich and complicated. It's, uh, it is a flawed movie in some ways. Um, it's got that kind of small indie feel to it. And the protagonist who, I'm not going to say who the protagonist is, because figuring out what's going on in the story and you know who you're meant to identify with is part of the narrative. But uh, the protagonist makes some pretty bad decisions that can be hard to sympathize with. That said, this movie is just beautifully shot. Uh, the acting, mostly Hannah, Emily Anderson, and Brittany Allen, who are both uh, from the Saw movie Jigsaw, <laughs> uh, just give these really terse, tense performances. And it's just, it's a sophisticated like twist-filled surprising like bloody little horror movie about how you never really know what's going on in somebody else's mind um, until kind of the final moments of, of whatever steps they take in the choices that they make in life so i, I don't want to get too much into the plot and i don't think that people should watch trailers because they give way too much away but you know if you're in the mood for uh like a dark little horror story about women in the woods and uh fighting and or running for your life and trying to outthink somebody who's out to kill you what keeps you alive it's really entertaining Scott, what about you? I really wanted to recommend a film called Minding the Gap. Uh, Minding the Gap is, it's on limited release, but but it's also available on Hulu. And I think it's it's kind of, is getting a reputation, deserving reputation is really one of the best documentaries to come out this year. It's from our own Cartemquin Films here in Chicago. In fact, uh, uh, Steve James, uh, who is, who's the director of Hoop Dreams and the new also quite good series America to me uh, played a role in sort of advising the director who's quite young named Bing Lu and Bing Lu shot segments of America to me so in any case uh, Bing Lu uh, is from the city of Rockford Illinois uh, which is north of Chicago right and uh, one of the things about Rockford Illinois is that it is a city that has come on upon very hard times economically and where the population has decreased over time so it's a, a pretty the landscape is pretty desperate to begin with and the documentary is about these kids who have been friends since they were in middle school and into high school and early adulthood who who skateboard together and they skateboard together to you know part of skateboarding for them is escaping very difficult home lives of you know emotional and physical abuse and and, and poverty and and this is their way from that and the film is quite beautiful to look at because Bing Lu shot a lot of it on a skateboard or would shoot certain sequences on a skateboard, which is really remarkable. And he brings himself into the movie in a way that, that is quite exciting uh, and which I won't spoil for you here. But the film is, is just about these guys who are trying to escape a destiny that seems certain and grim for them and in, in, in their very mixed success in doing so. Um, it's quite heartbreaking. Like I said, beautifully shot. And uh, yeah, it's one of the better documentaries I've seen this year. Uh, Minding the Gap. It's on Hulu. Genevieve? All right. Uh, well, I'm going to try to get through this without just my head turning into the heart eyes emoji. Yeah. Because <laughs> like a few days ago, I watched a film 
and literally all I've wanted to do since watching it is rewatch it. And I've resented every moment and everything I've had to do that isn't rewatching this film. And that movie is To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which is mm. a new teen rom-com on Netflix. And a certain corner of the internet has just become like rapidly obsessed with this movie. And I am part of it. I love this movie so much. Um, it's directed by Susan Johnson, adapted from a book by Jenny Han by a female screenwriter, Sophia Alvarez. And this is, I'll give you the premise. A teenage girl, her name is Lara Jean. She's played by Lana Condor. Her, uh, she is sort of an introverted romantic who writes love letters that she never sends. And those love letters get out because of course they do. And <laughs> in order to keep one of the crushes who receives the letter from, I guess, finding out that she does still love him, she enters into that classic teen rom-com trope, the fake relationship with Peter Kavinsky, played by Noah Centineo. And it proceeds pretty much exactly the way you think it does based on the fake relationship trope. But the way it gets there is so perfectly realized and so aware of the tropes it is playing with without being in any way meta or subversive about them. It is 100% embracing these tropes and at the same time displaying its knowledge of why these tropes work and fixing all the things about them that make them don't work. So much of why this film succeeds has to do with Lana Condor and Noah Centineo, who are just like these incredible young actors with this incredible chemistry and you just like fall in love with them immediately and talking about this movie just like makes me just want to squee like I don't really I, like it really it's really hard for me to describe to you like why this movie is so great other than that it is like the best possible realization of the both the teen movie and the romantic comedy and it gets there by being like totally self-assured in what it is and as a connoisseur of both teen comedies and romantic comedies, I really love that. And I love this movie. And if you have ever loved a teen comedy or a romantic comedy, or even just liked one and want to see it done really, really well in the comfort of your own home in under two hours, starring really great actors <laughs> written and directed by women, I would recommend to all the boys I've loved before. I like all those things. It, Tasha, please see this movie so we can just like flap our hands about it together because I really need to. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the last movie that you, you told me that I had to see so we could flap our hands together was Beyond the Lights. And I love that. So I, I've, I've already pulled it up on my laptop. I'm going to start I'm gonna start watching it now while Keith tells us what his next picture show pick is. What if Tasha comes back and like, meh. I don't know. I know. I know everybody else likes she it. Could, but she definitely know. could. There's always that potential. And, and then I'll and then I'll give uh, Genevieve a hill to die on. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. I, well, I, I should not have gone last because my enthusiasm is going to sound very temperate, no matter what I say compared to Genevieve. <laughs> I have a documentary to recommend. Uh, a film called King Cohen: The Wild World of Filmmaker Larry Cohen. Full disclosure: I just did a little piece on Larry Cohen for for the Ringer that should be out by the time we hear this. But um, it's a documentary about Larry Cohen, who um, maybe not a household name, but you know, you've no doubt experienced some of his films at some point. He directed such 70s classics as uh, Black Caesar, starring uh, Fred Williamson as, as a gangster, and It's Alive, about killer babies, Cue the Winged Serpent. Yeah, Cohen's just sort of a, a great idea guy, and you know, he continues to work as, as a writer. He, st he stopped directing a little while ago, but uh, you know, it's not that recent, but he, he wrote the, the, the film uh, Phone Booth, uh, in which Colin Farrell is trapped in a phone booth and it's sort of a, a typical Cohen thing it's like come with this irresistible scenario like a man is trapped in a phone booth or a film called The Stuff which is basically like what if the yogurt you ate was actually eating you uh, from the <laughs> inside uh, and you know, he worked with a very low budget uh, because he wanted complete creative control. He became, he, at one point in the film, he says, I became a, a director to protect myself as a writer and I became a producer to protect myself as a director. And like, he doesn't always have the resources to see his vision through all the way through, but there's an energy to it and the, the ideas are so good and he's willing to just like take weird chances and, and work with people like Michael Moriarty who gives these re really intense methody performances in the, in the middle of a lot of his movies. The film is quite good also at getting some behind the scenes stories. Like, you, you know, I had the sense that the, a lot of his films were shot, you know, guerrilla style because they, they look like they just showed up and shot, but I had no idea just how much, like as there's a scene in one of the movies where Fred Williams is shot on the street and stumbling around and like, 
basically Cohen was just filming this part, part of it from a fire escape nearby and the people reacting to him dying, quote unquote, on the street are people who actually thought they were dealing with a, a shot Fred Williamson. Uh, and like there's a scene in the film God Told Me To, which, which, which would be another recommendation of mine if you want to dip into the world of Larry Cohen. It's, it's this film about uh, a series of killings uh, committed by people who claim that God told them to kill. But there's a famous scene in that where, where Andy Kaufman uh, plays a policeman who who goes, you know, as part of this killing spree uh, in the middle of the St. Patrick's Day parade. And you're like, well, how did he do this? And like, basically, he just put Andy Kaufman in a police uniform and put in the middle of the St. Patrick's Day parade and filmed this this scene. It's uh, uh, We realize just kind of like how out there uh, the sewing techniques were. It's, it's really quite remarkable. And it's got a great bunch of people showing up to talk about Cohen. Everyone, people who worked with him, like like your Robert Forster and such, uh, Robert Forster types, and Eric Bogosian, who was, who was in one of his films when he was very young, to Scorsese, uh, who shows up to talk about uh, how much he kind of misses the, the renegade spirit. And which is, uh, you know, this film will kind of make you miss that too. I, I feel like there's sort of a, you know, it's a, a scenes from a closed chapter in low-budget filmmaking that, that's a little miss. So that's that's my recommendation, and that's on. It's in the, some theaters, but it's also it's on VID. You can watch it. We we'll watch it at home, like like all good movies should be seen, right, Scott? <laughs> oh, you definitely. Can it to your home. Uh, yeah, the the uh, I guess the Quad Theater in New York did a huge Cohen retrospective that I was really really wished I yeah. could go to that. But I've, I've it's only a color. It's a colorful filmography for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a, you, you know you're seeing something with his work. For sure, oh he did biography of Jagger Hoover. That's, that's the most, that's the craziest cast. It's, it's Broderick Crawford, uh, very late in his career as mm. Jagger Hoover, uh, and then everyone from like a young Rip Torn, Ronnie Blakely, all these character actors that you know, like John Marley, Jose Ferrer, Michael, Michael Parks. Parks. Michael Parks is Robert F. Kennedy. Wow, great performance. Uh, the movie is kind of all over the place, but it's sort of like piteously unsentimental about history. Uh, everyone's it's it, it's like Prince's history is like everyone just like power hungry people without uh, working angles with no heroes and it like like Hoover is no worse than anybody else. Anyway, it's, it's a it's it's a fascinating filmography to dig into and, and a, a good documentary uh, to introduce you to that. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Uh, we're taking the next couple of weeks off as our co-host head to the Toronto International Film Festival and other parts unknown. We'll return with a new episode on October 2nd and we'll announce the next pairing on our Twitter feed sometime before then. So keep an eye on twitter.com slash nextpicturepod to stay up to date. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Malcolm X, Black Klansman, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Um, you can find my reviews at N- NPR. I'm going to be going to... Uh, Toronto for Variety, so there'll be plenty of reviews from from there. And I think I maybe used to do some pickup work for Guardian. I've done some stuff for them, and and uh, also the New York Times, Washington Post, and other outlets. Uh, and are you the editor of anything, Scott? Oh, right, I'm the editor in chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Genevieve, uh, you can find my work at the Culture section at Vox.com, and I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith. Oh, I'm all over the place. You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. I collect my clips at keithphips.com. I write for, oh, who do I write for? I write the for, Ringer. I write for The Ringer. I write for Rolling Stone. I write for The Verge. You're branching I, out of those R outlets after spending yes. so much time in the Vs. Well, no, so I, I, The Verge and Vox and Vulture, you know, so I, I, the R's and Vs have been good, good to me. And, and uh, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm considering other parts of the alphabet. You should move into an, you should move into an RV. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe. I want to like a, I need like a good like B publication or um, or, or or I don't know an F an F or an NYT. Oh, yeah. sure, NYT would be great. Um, <laughs> you know where to reach me. Um, that, and how about you, Tasha? You can find my work at TheVerge.com, where I'm the film and TV editor. I haven't been writing a lot, film a lot lately because there's been a lot of big, big projects, but I'm going to TIFF, and then I'm going directly from there to Fantastic Fest. So expect a lot of reviews from me and a lot of commentary from both of these festivals uh, on my Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, and via 
Facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show. If you haven't subscribed to the show on the Apple podcast already, please consider it. Apple podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Scott Tobias for providing recording space in his home base, Sweet Emulsion Studios, a.k.a. Scott Tobias's basement. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. It's too late.